everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Fraud Boxer Podcast. It's been a brief moment while I was getting some conferences out of the way, but I'm back today and it's a special guest I have today. Today I'm joined by Sean Kelly from SeatGeek. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. God, your audio sounds great. I really am going to enjoy having somebody that has another pro audio set up on here. It's going to be crystal clear. The listeners are going to love it. So welcome to my podcast. Um, you and I have known each other for a little while. Uh, we actually met, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, during COVID was when we really started talking on a regular basis for a, a little while there. I know we met before, we talked before, but during COVID, we had a um, ticketing group that would meet and talk about what was happening in the ticketing industry. And you guys have had a call with your company with uh, like some of the other ticketing merchants for a while. I joined that when, when I was at Ticketmaster, but we really, really got a, a good cadence going for a while there during COVID while we shared what was happening to our industry. The ticketing industry is, is fairly unique in, in how the, the, the card brands approach because there is a lot of lead time. So it's different than selling just individual goods. Um, yeah, we have like, we have event times that are usually six months a year out. So it's a little different. So yeah, how are you doing today? You know, doing well, beautiful Northwest day. I'm just outside of Portland, Oregon. So oh, I, that's yeah. right. I, I grew up um, in Salem. So I'm familiar. Is, is it raining nice. today? It is not. We're not not yet in the rainy season. So uh, we're, we're taking this late summer, early fall. Those we can. the falls in the Northwest were always so great, especially during harvest, which like yeah. you could just get that smell in the air. You know, it wasn't too hot. Bugs were a little shitty, but you know, <laughs> yeah, so, so far we're good this year. That's great. Yeah. I, I always, I do, I do miss it up there, but I don't miss the rain. So I'm happy to hear. I spent some time up there this summer and it was like 105 degrees. So that was a little aggressive. Yeah, we had but, a, we had a yeah. week or so that was pretty rough this year. Yeah. And it just happened to be the one week I was up there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you can, so you can stay in LA and keep, keep yeah, away I'm going to keep my smog and my, my humidity and just my overall assholeness, but you know, I fit in really well here. I think, <laughs> I think everybody agrees. Um, yeah. So let's talk about you, talk about your history a little bit, and then we'll get into some of the meat and bones of this one, which I think is going to be more around um, your guys' approach and your specific approach to a couple of specific problems. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. But I think we'll, we'll start with how you got into fraud, uh, because none of us really plan to get into fraud. And you have a pretty interesting background. You've done quite a few different things that were definitely not fraud related and kind of far from fraud. So yeah, you want to run us through a little bit of, of what's going on with your, with your past? Yeah, totally. Um, degree was in communications. I worked in the nonprofit sector for a little while, um, worked in kind of some early tech, um, did a lot of front-end web development, um, took a break from tech for a while and renovated old houses, had a whole like crew of eight people working for me. Like house flipping? That. Like HGTV um, style? Uh, yeah, but focusing on like other clients. Sometimes it was whole house projects. Sometimes it was smaller um, and primarily 50 plus year old homes. Oh, um, wow. Kind of, kind of niched down into that. Did you have to work um, with like the city and like historical regulations on those things? Is 50 some, years old? Sometimes older? depending where they were. Um, a lot of only once or twice did we, I would say, um, most of the time it was, it was outside of city regulation, city, you know, constraints. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, everything from some really cool mid-century modern homes. I love um, those all the way back to like 100, 150 year old um, homes. So did that for a while and kind of missed tech during that time, doing kind of manual labor um, wipes you out and you don't really want to do much online after that. And so um, I missed a lot online those few years. Um, so I was excited to get back. 
Um, I started an event space in a 150 year old brewery um, that turned into a huge, really popular wedding venue in the Midwest um, and did that for a couple of years and then ended up out in the Northwest. And I'd known about SeatGeek for a long time. Um, one of my good friends that I used to share an office with was one of the first engineers at SeatGeek. And he would always try and get me to, to, to apply and come work for them, but I didn't ever have a desire to move to New York. Um, and then one, at one point when I was out here in Portland, found a job posting for SeatGeek in Portland and ended up being hired as their first Portland employee. Interesting. So why were they choosing Portland if they're New York based? Was there a specific um, reason? There was this movement. So this was seven. I've been there seven years this week, actually. Congratulations. Um, thanks. Um, and there was this movement right around that time. I think a lot of it kind of put to the forefront by Simple Bank. I don't know if you remember new of them, but it was one of the one of the early neo banks. Yeah, um, actually, I do. Yeah. And they had some pretty interesting approaches that kind of put them on the map. But um, one of their things was they who knows to what extent it was true and what extent it made a good story, but they supposedly did a, a test to be able to find where the happiest sounding people were in the country. And that's where they wanted to put their customer support center. So when you called in, you were talking to the happiest people. And so out of this study that they did, Portland is where they found and where they, they put their headquarters. So, and so Airbnb ended up following suit and putting a customer support center out here and a number of other kind of tech yeah. tech companies did. And so our customer support head at the time, um, his name was Ross, he ended up following suit and doing the same. And so that was kind of the impetus behind why we went from New York to also having a location in Portland. That's super interesting. So just a quick thing, I mean, it's going to talk about it on another episode another day, but I actually, um, that's how I got into fraud was partially due to the, the call center environment in Portland. So I was in Portland after the economy died in 2008 and um, I needed health insurance. So I was taking uh, call center work. So like there was a T-Mobile call center down in Salem. And then uh, there was a Apple outsourced call center that was through Xerox ACS up in Tigard right there off the, yep. the 217 uh, I-5, five, sorry, I could say I-5 or five because I'm used to saying done in front of all my freeways <laughs> yeah. from LA. But um, also at the Netflix uh, contact center they used to have over in Hillsboro. Yep. So that's where I really was uh, got my start into fraud at the time with some some card testing stuff. And I'll talk about that on another episode another day, but that I just think it's funny because I remember I was like why are there so many call centers? And I remember people would say that the 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 like the dialect there was no notable like um like you know people from the south, people from New York like they have that that tone and like that that inflection and in people in Portland they don't. So it's very ambiguous, get, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, very yeah. just it's just pretty gray ass English, <laughs> you yep, know? Yep. So that's, true. that's really funny that you guys even noticed that. So you were the first yeah. one out there and then you guys, you guys have an office there now too? We do. Um, how many... Pre-COVID there were about 75 people in our Portland office. Um, so oh. pretty, pretty good size. Um, now I think we have about that many in Portland, but only maybe 20 or so that come into the office. Um, okay. And so we have a new office, a different office than we did prior to COVID. Okay. Um, a great space downtown. So is your whole team uh, in, in Portland area? No, we're, we're about 70% Portland, 30% outside of Portland. Okay. Um, That's pretty interesting. I, I, I always like to, to figure out what people are doing now, like post COVID because everybody moved around a lot. 
I mean, yeah. I, I, I obviously switched jobs in the middle of COVID and I have a, a company and it was really interesting for me to onboard with a company that I've never met anybody at. I mean, I go into yeah. my office every once in a while. I'm fortunate that we have a building down here, but yeah. it's, it's weird to see like how companies spread out and where their people are and how they're managing their teams in this, this new world. Yeah. But, uh, it's been, it's been super interesting. Um, our team largely has been hired in the last year um, oh, wow. because of kind of coming back out of COVID. Um, the two biggest teams hit with, have, you know, with layoffs, unfortunately, were customer support and fraud teams because you don't have in the events. No sales. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> there's no, there's no sales happening. There are no events happening. And so there wasn't a lot of direct support needed, obviously some, you know, supporting refunds and yeah. postponements and all of uh, that. Um, very aware of then, those. <laughs> and then, but yeah, on the, on the fraud risk side there, there wasn't much happening. So our team got pretty small and lean during that time. Um, and then, yeah, coming out of it, it's interesting. We weren't a remote company prior as many companies were not. Um, and now we have a pretty cool approach where you can choose to be an office person, a remote person, or a flex where you can kind of- It's pretty cool. Like worlds. it's it's really interesting because I, I mean, I've had large teams before and then I had large teams in COVID. I still have, I still have a fairly okay sized team right now. Obviously there was some, been some, some things that have affected the size of my team at this company. But um, when I was a ticket master, I had a pretty large team and- you know, we went all remote, like we, we all had to do in the world. And there are some people that, I think the vast majority of the people wanted that, you know, they liked that, especially I had some, some folks that live far away and, and LA could be hard to get around. Um, but there are people that don't like that. They, they crave yeah. the social interaction. Yeah. And it's been really, it was really difficult for me to, because they would be like, can we go to the office? And I'm like, well, you can, but there's not going to be anybody there, you know? And then like right, for the first right. time, like they couldn't because then, then you had to go if you were vaccinated, then you had to figure out how they were going to prove that. And then it was this whole thing, you know, but there are people that like, do like to go in. Like I, I admit that if I didn't have to commute, I would go in, but it's the commute on either side, especially for me in Los Angeles, where it's, well, I'm in Orange County now, where I got to go into the office tomorrow. And on, on this coming Thursday, we're recording this on a Tuesday, everybody. I'm, there goes the magic right there. But uh <laughs> Um, pseudo live right i know see we're close but i it's just it's gonna take me an hour each way to get there and it's just why you know but at the same yeah. time i have to be respectful and understand that some people aren't and then you know we we have the challenges too we, we could talk about whole management and in, in covid and then whole different if i go on for hours on that but like people that tend to have a lot of um hardware malfunctions as excuses you just have to eventually sure. say, hey, you know, I'm going to have to have you go into the office so we can make sure where you have IT resources nearby. It's, it's just been a, it's been a wild ride, you know, but I, I think it is it's really interesting that you guys give the people the choice. And I think that I might actually start incorporating the, incorporating that into some of the uh, the offers that I do here, if my company will allow me, because I know we have desk space, yeah. you know, clearly we have a, like a 10 year lease on a brand spanking new building. So yeah. uh, <laughs> very sure they'd like to use it. But let's talk yeah. about SeatGeek um, specifically for, for those that don't know, obviously it's a ticketing company. Can you talk about it in your own words? And then I will probably add some stuff on the top. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'll give a, a couple of kind of waypoints um, that will add some context and make sense. We started out as a ticket search engine, right? And so you would search for tickets to a live event and then we would pass you off to StubHub or any of the number of smaller ticket sites way back in the day. Um, and the transaction then would happen there. And so we just made our I way think, on affiliate sales originally. I think that I, uh, I used you guys like probably seven, eight years ago 
it was like you guys have pictures of what it was like to sit in the seat. Yeah. Yeah. And that was what I remember. You guys were the first ones to do that. And I it was yep. super useful for me when I was buying it like at arenas that I'd never been to. So I distinctly yep. remember that piece. But I yeah, I, I think you guys did pass me in on to Vivid, I think, or something at the time. Was that was yeah, that I don't remember all of the all of the partners. It was a lot of them. But yeah, we we weren't originally we weren't merchant of record for any transactions. We were just making money off of affiliate sales. Um, our view from seat was one of the things that kind of put us on the map. And then the other big one that a lot of people know is deal score. And so it's not just sorting by the cheapest seats or, you know, the quote unquote best, you know, closest to the ice seats, but taking a whole lot of different factors into consideration. The best seats at a hockey event might not be the best seats at a football game. Well, they aren't at you know, the same. And so layering yeah. in all of that. And um, so that was kind of the original background. And then around exactly seven years ago, we launched our consumer marketplace. So C2C consumers could sell tickets. Um, and that's what really then put us head to head with StubHub, um, still just playing in that secondary space. Um, and then around four or five years ago, I guess now, yeah. um, was when we started into primary ticketing. Yeah, you um, did. Our first, our first North American team was Sporting Kansas City. Um, and that was kind of a, done as a pilot to see how it went working with a, a separate company that, that provided the box office software. Um, and that went so well that we ended up acquiring that company. Um, they were called oh. TopTicks um, and incorporated their software into ours. And then that's what let us move forward into being a primary ticketing provider. Um, and now, you know, we're, let's see, we have three NFL teams this year. The Dallas Cowboys um, were our first NFL team, um, the New Orleans Saints, the Arizona Cardinals. Um, we recently announced Washington Commanders next season will be with us. Um, yeah. So a number of NBA teams, a number of MLS teams. So in those cases, besides, you know, our secondary marketplace, which still is continuing today, we also are competing now head to head with TM and with Axis um, are the kind of main players in the States. Yeah. And, and overseas. Just yeah. We also, I was just going to say we ticket half of the English Premier League in oh. the UK, which is pretty cool. Um, so, so you guys are really growing this primary business. Yeah. So, um, just so, for the the listeners that don't understand, there are um, what we're talking about here. There are two different types of ticketing. So there is a primary ticketing system, which is the the company that makes the ticket. So usually, arenas sign an exclusive deal with a ticketing provider like Access, Ticketmaster, or SeatGeek. And that is the only company that makes that actually creates the ticket. So if you're buying from them, buying a primary ticket, you're the first person to hold that ticket. It is yours. Nobody else could have that ticket. And then there's the secondary markets, which are your StubHubs, your Vivid Seats. Um, Ticketmaster has one and you guys have one as well that you as the person that bought or hold that primary ticket can resell it. Now that means the person that's buying it from you on that secondary market, they are not buying a direct firsthand inventory. They're buying what's called resold inventory. Now that's, that's the two pieces there. Now there are, when you get into the secondary market, there are people that are on the other side of that. So me selling a, a ticket would expect to be some sort of payout at the end after my tickets are sold. So there's some risk that can happen there. And then the people that are buying the ticket, they want to make sure that they're getting a legitimate ticket, not something that's been sold like 15, 16 different times. So there's a lot of stuff that, that companies like, like you guys do, like, like StubHub does, like even Ticketmaster does to make sure that those tickets are the real actual thing. But having the luxury of being a primary 
and a secondary and being able to rebarcode things if if you need to back a sale. So that way yep. you don't, like it's not a PDF that like five people can see. It can only ever be seen once. There are some very useful upsides. Now, the problem is, is to enter the primary ticketing market it's it's hard because these a lot of arenas have very long-term deals with clients that they've worked with for decades. So in order to be able to 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 get one away from somebody that they've worked with for decades is is a pretty big deal. And if you have somebody yeah. like the Dallas Cowboys on your roster, that's not something to be overlooked. Like that's that's a marquee client with a owner that is notorious for for being really into how his fans experience is. So congratulations on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That was, that was a pretty exciting moment for sure. Yeah. So now that you are in both the primary and the resale side, that has brought up a whole lot of, of things that can happen um, on the risk side of the business. So you now have to like doing, doing regular purchase fraud, I think is something that we all know it changes every day. There's a lot of things that can happen. Payouts brings a whole different element in there. There's a lot of AML compliance that has to be brought in. Uh, so that's a whole different thing. So what have you done? Um, obviously you probably can't say tool names. I think that's something that we, we never can do depending on if you are actually have case studies or whatnot out there in the world, but what have you done? What's changed? Like, just tell me all about your fraud setup and tell me about some of the challenges. And I'm probably going to jump in and ask questions because we kind of time this so that we can, uh, we could be more like a conversation anyways for the audience. So I'm not going to know all that he's going to say. I might know a little bit, but you know, we'll, 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 we'll keep it fresh here. Yeah. Sounds, sounds good. Um, so one of the really interesting things for us, like I mentioned during COVID, our team got really small and really lean um, and not having a lot to, to do fraud wise caused us kind of, to kind of take a step back and evaluate how we've been doing things and see, is there anything that we can change? There were a few constraints along with that. One, we knew that at some point events are going to come back. We don't know when that's going to be. We don't know if that's going to be like a slow trickle back up or if it was going to come back the way that they kind of shut down that March 16th or whatever that yeah. day was in 2020. Um, and so having to be prepared for that without having a team that knows your systems, that knows how things work, um, made for a, a pretty interesting set of constraints to look at and how do we address that. Um, beforehand, um, I'll, I'll try and walk a little carefully to not give away all of the secrets um, but beforehand, we were very manual review heavy as most of the ticketing industry and a lot of e-commerce yep. obviously is. Um, ticketing is really interesting because when fraudsters are acting and ticketing, it's most, it's most heavily weighted toward last minute because as soon as that event happens, they know they have their money and they're, they're free and clear. Um, there's no product sitting out there. There's no, nothing can be returned or reclaimed after the event happens. Um, and so it tends to be pretty appealing for that and other reasons. And the, the payouts are usually high. Like, like most people's ATVs are like, you know, in the 60, 30 to $60 range. Ticketing is several hundred dollars. Resale yeah. ticketing is, is pushing a thousand. Often more. So yeah. it's yeah. a big payout and it's easy and it's yep. cash. So like, yep. I mean, it's not easy, but it's like, it's, it's lucrative if you can, if you can figure out a scheme. So, yeah. yeah. So, so looking at all of that, um, Everything that we've done in the recent years has been based around machine learning. And it's a supervised machine learning platform that we've been utilizing and building on. And so looking at that, supervised means that you are actively training those machine learning models. Yep, right. You put and the so guides on it. Yep. When it comes to fraud, typically the way that most e-commerce that uses supervised machine learning works, maybe 
near all of it um, is based around the fraud chargeback, right? When down the road, maybe it's a few days later, maybe it's 30, 60, 90 days later that you get a fraud chargeback. That's the main object that trains the machine learning model what's bad. And so as a team of agents or a risk team, you're trying to also train the model of what's good so that you're not you know, letting everything be assumed bad um, and you're training it bad. And so as we looked at it, it was like, how can we shorten that feedback loop? Because um, one, one of the downsides of machine learning, especially when it comes to event ticketing, as you know, every single day, your customer base is different. Maybe tomorrow you have a Taylor Swift on sale. The next day it's a BTS, yeah. you know, big push. The next day is uh, and- Garth Brooks. You know, every single day it's a totally different profile of customer, totally different, you know, and they travel behavior. Like people like yep. move for events, so like you can't do your regular calculations. You know, like yep. there's just a lot of different factors that go in to ticketing, and like yep. people like you don't see them all the time, and then all of a sudden you'll see them by a bunch. You know, everything that looks. Like that, and then not even to bring in like professional resellers, which look <laughs> like every other bot you've ever seen, but it's yeah. a like a bunch of people. It's just so many factors that go into ticketing, yeah. so it could be difficult. But that feedback loop, like, is is true because you don't get like I think the vast majority of usual t- tar- chargebacks come in and ticketing in about forty five days, um, yeah. probably like it's like seventy five percent. But the the problem is is your on sale happens for like a a couple of days, and then that event's yeah. sold out. So yeah you can get ripped right in there, but, and then you won't even know that you've been ripped. But one of the good things, like I, I'll just like to give away a little bit. One of the good things about event ticketing is the fraud that you see on the on sale, you have time to usually stop it unless it's been yeah. resold. Um, yeah. But the, the bad thing about that is you don't see the most of your fraud on the on sale. Like you were just saying, you see it all of our fraud yeah. happens in the last minute ticketing window. <laughs> yep, yep. And again, like those last minute rushes happen. And then that same buyer behavior and same pattern of browsing and et cetera, doesn't happen again, right? Yep. The next day, it's a totally different last minute purchasing pattern. And last week it was NBA and next week it's NHL. And, you know, like it's, it's totally different. Um, and so with that, try to look at how can we shorten this feedback loop and not be reliant on the fraud chargeback. Um, so that was one of the, the premise points. The other manual review sucks. Oh God, um, it does. Having, it's so expensive. Having to you know look at one order at a time and look at, you know, dig into that and try and figure out who this person is that's buying it. Are they real? Are they a fraudster? Are they using a stolen credit card? You're essentially, it's a slightly educated roll of the dice. Yeah. And like half the time, like the people that are winding up in your manual review, like they're standing outside the arena. Like right. their, their four friends already went in, they're trying to buy a ticket. Then you got a manual review. If you don't get to that thing in minutes, like yep. you could ruin their whole thing. And then you're getting a charge back just on customer service alone on yep. that. So yep. it's, it's, it's so challenging. Yeah. yeah. Manual reviews sucks in, in event ticketing. Yeah. So what we came up with was this idea of every six hours, can we review the previous six hours worth of orders? And so we're looking through those previous six hours of orders trying to find bad orders that were missed and got through. We're trying to find good orders that were thought to be bad and rejected so that we can train the model that this was actually good, um, as well as trying to identify fraud trends. If I'm, as an agent, looking at 100 orders, I can see the trends across the last 6 or 12, 24 hours in a very different way than I can if I'm looking at one order at a time. So, yeah, so you're looking at a huge data set. So they have, like, a bunch of data on their screen, like, in, in like, an Excel-style format. 
And then yeah. Into, yeah, I used to do that. Yeah, um, it's at, it's a little at, bit nicer than an Excel format. Um, yeah. But but do you, looking, do you do it inside your tool? Yeah, we do. Okay. Um, so so we'll start kind of with this time based list, and then as agents are going through, kind of looking for the trends, they can very easily create lists based on any trends that they're seeing. So maybe they're seeing a lot of, I don't know, uh, we'll say Brooklyn Nets, a lot of fraud there um, or potential fraud. And so they'll create a list of Nets orders from the last 24 hours. So they can okay. look through. So they're retroactively going back. And yeah, like... but but constrained to very recent. Yeah. Um, and using those, because then all of a sudden, okay, I see this pattern of 12 out of the last 100 orders for Nets. I can see this very clear pattern. All of the email and phone numbers are checking out fine, but there's this commonality in maybe it's the bin or maybe it's an IP or you know something like that that they can tie back in or you know various device details, all the different the different factors that are weighed, um, and then that data can be used to very clearly identify fraud trends and fraud rings, so that we can base our training of the of the model off of that. How do you, can you start training the model? Like if you see Mark, are you marking things as fraud in real time and is it automatically train the model or do you have to go back and then say every so often run a, run a retrain on your model or does it do it in real time? It doesn't in real time. Oh, oh that's, so, that's so we're constantly like every day and we're, we monitor our label rates. If you're labeling mm -hmm. too heavily on bad, then you're going to start skewing the model bad. And so we've got to have so many good labels, also so many bad labels. Um, so that we can train the model accordingly and, and keep it balanced. Um, and so moving to that kind of post-order review model has been totally game-changing for us. Um, our agents are happier and it's far more exciting to work when you're like getting to look through those hundred orders and find the trends and, and try and piece together almost investigation style um, compared to looking at one order at a time, you've got a ticking clock trying to make a decision, is this good or bad? Maybe you're right, maybe you're wrong. We'll find out if we get a fraud charge back down the road. Um, more yeah. common than not is that you're insulting a customer and you're rejecting an order because you don't know if it's good or bad. Um, and in Interesting, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come to false positives in a minute. I definitely wanna dive into that a little bit, but I think yeah. that it's really interesting how like, so basically the order, the, they have the tickets, like technically the person would have the tickets, so you would just be retroactively like, well, canceling them <laughs> if uh, if they're going through it. And do you apply this like just to, do you apply this across the whole customer base? Um, yeah. We do. Um, and yeah. And so not everything at this point, we're not primary for everything, not all resale can we reissue, but the lead that this gives us on getting ahead of fraud is yeah. so much so more if you see someone starting the orders yeah. that do get through that it cost wise is sort of of no consequence, but more than that, looking toward the future, ticketing came from a place where it was all PDF based. Oh, yeah. And once those tickets are out there, you know, your SOL, but we're moving to a place that the barcode is a living object and, you know, looking toward the future, more and more and more inventory will be able to be saved and recouped against yeah and I, I mean it's 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 a great point like you don't see the pds very much anymore like you just don't and like yeah. a lot of people like they were used to that you know we, we used to have the, we got we're used to paper stock tickets then we went to pds for like 10 years and we were used to the pdfs but now with like the mobile phones you know like your phone is your ticket and uh so we have like the revolving barcodes like safe takes from from Ticketmaster, and then the access their, their revolving one there's pretty cool um but the it's even going to nfc now 
too. So that's that's pretty cool because you know a, a lot of these ticketing companies, you, you see a lot of, of internet chatter where they're like, "Why well, don't ticketing companies? It's going to revolutionize the blockchain." You know, NFTs, blockchain. Well, a lot of these people don't realize that if they Google their favorite ticketing company or their least favorite ticketing company and the word blockchain together, you'll see over the last ten years there has been a lot of acquisitions in that space by those companies, okay. and a lot of those things like the revolving barcodes and stuff actually are ticketed on the blockchain uh, by those companies. It's not an open blockchain, but it's a proprietary blockchain and it yeah. exists. And it's it's been super helpful to be able to, to track back. So if you have the, like a, if you have a primary ticket and it's being resold on your own platform, you can see the life the life cycle of the ticket. Yeah. Now there's another the fraud thing that happens too in the ticketing industry, what I call, and it's more of an abusive thing, it's called ticket tumbling. It's where they try and transfer the ticket like a thousand times to hopefully lose track of yeah. like where it's going. Um, yeah. And, and sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't, you know, but there are, you see companies now starting to limit how many times a ticket can be transferred. And that's kind of helping with like the the, the, the people's, the, the general public's general annoyance with, with resale is like, you know, just jacking the prices up above what's business. You know, it is, if there's, a, you got to think of ticketing as inventory, there's not like an unlimited amount, you know? So like if, if someone wants to pay more for that inventory, like that's, so be it, you know, like, I know it's yeah. going to piss a lot of people off, but I said that, but that's the yeah. price of the, that good, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. I think we've all learned that lately here, you know, with the price of inflation and, 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 and all of those things too. But yeah. that's, I mean, I've got to go off on a tangent there, but the, the false positives I think is, is something that's super interesting because that can be hard to measure. So yes. I measure that on customer contacts, which isn't always the best because there's a lot of customers that don't call. So how do you yeah. guys measure that? <laughs> so this is probably one of the, besides that move and like kind of rethinking our approach, probably one of the other things I'm most proud of is our approach to insults. Um, a few years ago, we picked up that term um, from a guy named Kevin that used to work, I believe, at Facebook. Um, okay. It's kind of where that originated, I believe. But to I me, call the, customer insults too. I'll the credit idea to of <laughs> humanizing that and taking, you know, a false positive is a number and a metric that's great. But when you think about insulting a customer, there's a real person on the other end that didn't get to go to a, an event. And if you're you know, passionate about getting people to live at events and getting to experience those emotional moments with friends and family and you know, those settings, that's a, that's a big deal. Um, and if you screw up with a customer too many times, they're not coming back. Yeah. You're going to go somewhere else. And so really humanizing that and looking at it is insult. So what we did, um, again, we kind of same approach as COVID, like step back, kind of break it down, look at everything and say, how can we measure this? And so what we did, we started taking, let's say here's a hundred orders that we've rejected thinking that they're fraud. We're actually going to accept some portion of those and see if they turn into fraud chargebacks. So let's say it's 15 of those hundred orders that we decide Instead of rejecting, we're actually going to accept them and let them process through. But it's, you have like a, a, a you know, it's strategic which ones you're going to accept, right? It's ones that you are kind of on the fence about. You're just not grabbing a random sampling, right? No, we are grabbing a random sampling so oh. that we can get a true idea of what our insult rate is. So, and we can set the parameters. So, you know, maybe we want to run a test on higher dollar orders and see what our insult rate is there. Maybe lower, maybe last minute versus earlier out, maybe... MLS versus NFL. So there's all different criteria that we can break that testing down on. But essentially, yes, accepting those orders, seeing do they turn into a fraud chargeback. And so 60 days out is when we consider by and large the, the, the fraud chargeback would have come in by that point. And so we'll, that's when we'll 
start using the numbers. Um, and our insult rate was far higher than anybody ever would have guessed. Interesting. And I it, guarantee everybody listening to this that doesn't test this way, your number is way higher than you think it is. Um, and so that then informs and gives us something that we can we can work against. And we know exactly how much money we're leaving on the table with those insults. And there's a tipping point, right? If you if you pull that insult lever back too far, then you're letting more fraud through. If, yeah. you know, at any point, I can stop fraud completely from you know stolen Just credit cards being used, but then my insult rate is through the roof, right? And so, and there's a you know a real dollar number that hits the bottom line in the business that way. And so, um, so balancing it, but always knowing at any moment kind of what our insult rate is, what our chargeback fraud chargeback rate is, and being able to have those two levers to That's adjust over time. Super interesting. Like I, I, I've talked about it on some of my other podcasts on here, um, some of the episodes in the past that like, like you and I both have competition in our space. So we have to be aware of our insult rate. And, and, you know, I, there's so many things like classes at MRC at mag, you know, that are like, what, what, what level of friction? Actually, I saw it actually when we were at mag last week, I saw on the board, somebody had put on the, the Walmart one, like, what is the, the, correct level of friction and like that's that that really caught me off guard that 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 question was up there when they were talking it was walmart and jp morgan were doing that that one with uh actually i think it was mastercard was on there too um and it was so funny that like people are looking for that exact answer but there isn't it's your business like what is like your level of friction for going to an event and somebody's like hunger and lust to go to an event is completely different than someone trying to buy a box of protein from me you know to go work out because they can go down to the local gnc or walmart and buy that protein if they really want to so if i can't piss them off like i have to be really careful so the friction on my site has to be almost non-existent now we used to in in other markets do things like small charges um, and authorization codes, but mostly in foreign markets, like we did a lot of business in Russia before the war. So we were able to, to do some things in those, those regions that they're more familiar with. Um, but that sort of stuff doesn't work in, in North America. Um, it's the same thing like 3D Secure, where, where Europe is more used to seeing 3D Secure prompts. In America, it's like, what is this? People think they're getting their banks taken over. But at some businesses where they're the only sole supplier of a product, you can put all sorts of friction in front. You could 3D secure them. You could have them solving CAPTCHAs. You know, you could have them doing math problems, doing your homework, and they're still yep. going to do it in order to get their, 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 their item. But for yep. you and I, like we have those tickets, like on your site, if they're resale, they might be listed on stuff of and vivid and everything. And you're, you're trying to get them on your, to buy from you. Meanwhile, like you can't be throwing 3D secure pops. You can't be doing the like, customer validations. You know, you need to be able to authenticate your customer as quickly as possible with, with the most amount of accuracy without them knowing you're doing it at yep. all. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And that's just the way there is to it. And, and I think that you're so right. Like you need to find a way to, to measure your false positives in my way. Isn't perfect. It's better than nothing. And it's something that we are very aware of. And I, and I've done a lot since I've been here to try and to try and lower that mostly around approvals. Um, I think that our, our, I've, I've increased our risk tolerance a little bit here just to, just, I think that, you know, people are sensitive, businesses are sensitive to, to, to fraud and fraud losses. And seeing that without context can can alarm people in in higher positions at their organization. But if you look, yeah. step back and look at the context and you look at the approval rates and you look at the percentages there versus what your fraud losses are, there's definitely a lot of value in increasing your approval rates up front um, and declining less orders. Now, if your risk 
profile. So if you're selling like digital coins uh, for the world's most popular game, you know, it's going to be a little different than if you're selling rugs, you know, to some, I don't know, random knitting factory over somewhere, you know? (laughs) Yep, for sure. So how, so you were able to move the the needle pretty significantly on your false positives. Um, How long did that take? Like, I mean, did it take months? Did it take years? Like just because you said COVID, we've been in COVID forever. So I think one of the the interesting things is always being aware of insults and trying all sorts of different approaches to making agents aware and knowing every agent what their insult and fraud chargeback rate is. And, you know, knowing that at any given point, we saw some small movements, but it wasn't until our move to the to the post-order review process that I described that we saw massive movement in reduction of insults um, to the tune of I'll just say tens of millions of dollars this past oh, 12 wow. months. There you um, go. Pretty, pretty significant. And are you, are you busted into the board meetings and saying, look at what I did? Uh, not yet. We'll <laughs> see. Um, um, hopefully that happens, but we'll see. Um, don't want to give away any surprises, but um, yeah, that, that has been a huge win for us. Um, and that's, you know, we're a year into this kind of post-order review approach and still tons of optimization to happen. Um, The other big thing you alluded to this earlier in something you were saying, but besides being able to train the model better um, and being able to reduce our insults, we now know when we're getting hit with fraud attacks, right? Previously, we didn't know until we would get, you know, a massive amount of fraud charge back. So cross your fingers through World Series time and playoff time and see what happens in the next month and did we get hit or not. And now we know within a day, within 24 hours of any, you know, increases in fraud that we can then react and respond to, um, which is one of the coolest things. And so, you know, not, not that there aren't some orders that we didn't find, but the goal is getting as close to hundred percent of yeah. fraud chargebacks, knowing about them before they come in. So and we'll um, talk about chargebacks in a second there, but I think that there's a lot to be said for a solid data dashboard like a data forward dashboard i see you know i i my very first fraud provider that i ever worked with full-time had a, a really like you could you could just see all the data that you wanted to see as far back as you want to see it in one scrollable page so you could just be going you could see a thousand rows if you wanted to and you could you could set your columns to whatever you wanted to and it's just like here's data like yeah. just do what you want to do and that was like how i spent probably the first almost five years of my life in this industry using that that level of tool now i use other tools in a multi-layer approach there too but then you know i i cycled through a bunch of other tools throughout my time um and some of them don't some of some of the really popular ones like the really 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 popular ones don't show data like that like you have to do a data extract in order to look at it in that format they'll show you like a queue and then you could go in and you could click on individual orders and you could look at it but you can't just see just a huge list of just orders in in chronological order what happened to him here's a here's a all the information approved all the information approved all the information review all the information declined you know and it's just right there and like you can see like those paths it's like a crossword puzzle almost you yeah. can see like yeah, those yeah. lines coming across and and i do wish i'm actually working with a consulting client right now um on the, on my own that that is looking for a tool that does this like that's how they 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 do exactly what you do in a post order review right now but they are using a a third-party tool to do it. And in order to get that list, they're not allowed to do data exports themselves. So they have to email their rep and get it. 
and they aren't able to get that quick enough. And when they do, often columns are missing. So like they can't get like things like an IP address or they'll say like the last four of the credit card is gone. So they can't see, like they never get what they want. So we're yeah. trying to work with them and their and their provider to give them a um, actual dashboard that works. So whether that be creating a new tool or modifying their existing tool, we're trying to get them there. But it's just, it is really useful when you see it like that. Um, and then I just think that a lot, so many people are used to like leaning on their tools these days. You know, we, a lot of these tools, yeah. like the, like the instant decision tools and the, and the covered tools are really big on making those decisions. You can lay off your whole manual review team. We'll take care of all the decisioning for you. But at the end of the day, like if you need to look at the data, you need to be able to do that if you want. And then you also need to be able to have people on your team or yourself, you know, yeah. be able to, to glean the information. You know, you and I are yeah. getting a little, uh, a little, old to have our sleeves rolled up and be in the trenches as much as we used to. But yeah. if we need to, we still need to be able to see the data. And I'm actually, I, I have a couple of different tools that I use here and one of them allows me to do that. And it's been super cool just to just, just to look at the data, just to see the data. And that was my long winded rant on what it is to have layouts and, and data dashboards appropriately, not just data that gives you insights, but just raw effing data. Bro. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Let's talk about your chargebacks. Um, yeah. What has happened with your chargebacks since you've taken this new approach? Um, we're at a pretty low level, um, lowest from a sustained kind of monthly view. We're at the lowest that we've been really, I'll say, in normal operating times. So exclude the time of COVID. Yeah, um, well, that, really we have ever. to. We all had to get certain exemptions from our uh, from the networks for our individual yeah. mids during that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the, um, I mean, it, it's balanced. Like, I, like, I think yeah. that that's totally fair. Like I was saying like earlier, like I was alluding to that I increased my risk tolerance. Like there's a balance, there's a balance between now that to be the lowest doesn't mean you're winning. And like, I don't, no, and I'll say no. that on every panel there yeah. is, if you have no chargebacks, you fucked up. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to say it. I have the explicit tag well, on here so I can. And the, <laughs> and the interesting thing is, especially in a, in a machine learning model, like we've been talking about, you have to have fraud happen so you can yeah. train the model of what fraud looks like. Because right? you, if you, so I don't want to be zero, your... or I can't yeah. beat it, right? Exactly. And so, and so I've got to have some. Um, and I know with the post order review approach, that means there's going to be more get through at the very front. But then hopefully we're finding it within that six to twenty four hour time frame, um, and being able to act on it. Um, the big change for us has been in non fraud chargebacks. Um, oh. consumers have figured out that they can file a chargeback rather than yeah, reaching out to customer support. Yeah, so it doesn't have. matter how great your customer support team is, how easy they are to get a hold of. You know, we we pull stats and of our non-fraud chargeback rate, which is honestly often in the last few months, last year, been higher than our fraud chargeback rate. Mm. For the first, you know, yeah. normally pre-COVID non-fraud is not really something on anybody's radar um, to any large extent. And now, like I said, it's higher than often higher than our fraud chargebacks. Um, but people know that they can, you know, yeah. open a non-fraud chargeback and yep. get their money back in a lot of cases. Do you and ever so, go like, this is what I used to, and I still do it, but my, most of my things are in other languages now, but I, the only one that gives me reliable insight into what the customer is thinking on these non-fronts is PayPal because I can see their comments when they open the claims. 
So I love to go into PayPal and look at the comments of the reasons why that they're they're doing. And usually it is just absurd, like yeah. absolutely absurd. Like no real consumer can really have that line of thinking and expect to just get their money back. They're just like, right. like in ticketing, it was like, I don't want to go anymore. It's like, that's not how this works, you know? Like, and then a lot of things like people using the wrong payment methods or they get caught using somebody else's payment method. And they're like, I'm in trouble. I, I need my money back. It's like, yeah. so if you ever get a chance, go in your PayPal and look at the, the, the claims comments because it's eye-opening the thought process that you learn from your consumers like on that. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah that's, that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah non-fraud, man. Part, non-fraud part of it though too is looking at what your ultimate win rate is, especially with non-fraud, right? Like obviously you've got friendly fraud mixed in with fraud chargebacks. And so that's, that's a whole thing in and of itself. But with non-fraud, hopefully they you know, there's ways to resolve those and yep. they weren't owed money back. Otherwise it would have been a refund in the first place. Um, and so you've got to look at it differently and you can't base everything on just what your opened non-fraud chargeback rate is. I've spent a lot of time with, in my past, with the actual uh, networks themselves, like looking at the responses that, that I had sent in and said, okay, so I lost this. I thought it was a pretty good response. Like why... Why? And then so I've done it with almost every single one of them and sat down like, and I, I'm talking like day long working sessions and really gleaned a lot of information, like things like, like for American Express, specifically on digital goods, for example, they, a lot of times, if you can't prove delivery on a non-receipt, they will just yeah. decide against you. So one of the things that they suggested was you say the goods were delivered to, and then you put the email in your response. So you have the, the, the keyword is delivered. And they look for that, you know, they're, 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 people are trained to look for that. So it's how you word things. And then I think the, the biggest one, you know, and I think this is where a lot of, of businesses might go wrong is like the less is more approach. You know, you need to be direct because like these guys that are, that are deciding these, these cases, these outcomes, like they have a queue that they're going through on their computer. Yeah. So they want to be in and out of these cases as quick as possible. They have KPIs on their side too. So you want to get them the information as clearly and as quickly and in as few words as possible. You can have your supporting document on the other pages, but if you have like 18 pages, like they're not gonna, I think that's the limit now. They're not gonna read all 18. Like get that shit done in like yeah. five, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. Like, and highlight your, your terms of service. But like, if you if you got proof of shipping or anything like that, or any sort of violation, like you need to really get to the point and get in and out of there. And I've, I've been testing. Um, so we have a, a Shopify that we use to test new products, you know, it's, it's easy for us to, to, to bring things on. And I test the responses on there, like myself. And I've been like trying to see how few words I can get in a, in a generic template reply that I just copy and paste and change the names on. And I would say I'm at about a 75% win rate right now. And I've got it wow. down to, I'd say it's, it's one single paragraph and it is four sentences long. And that's all I, I mean, I do like I said, the shipping label and, and that sort of stuff on there, but it's just yeah. one little blurb that I use in a 75% win rate. I'm pretty that's, proud of that one. That's <laughs> pretty great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, I mean, the, the way each of the issuers handle chargebacks and, and what they're looking for, your point about AMX is, is spot on because it's totally different with every single one. 
Yeah, and the compelling evidence stuff, like when you have like on the, especially on like Visa, you know, like Visa's vary by the book. So you need to make yeah. sure that you really draw attention to like the things. I know compelling evidence is changing, it's expanding finally next year. But like right now, you know, the IP address, the email address and the and the credit card, I actually would like either bold those or if the if the issue were to accept color, I'd put it in bright red. So it would yeah. instantly draw the guy's attention to it. And we had a pretty good win rate, especially during COVID though, you know, like the COVID stuff, um, like, you know, was, was majority non-fraud. I was like, almost everything was non-fraud coming in. And that was, that was pretty brutal there. You know, I understand what the people were, what people were wanting from that. And I, and I empathize with them, you know, but like at the end of the day, I had to do my job. And, and a yeah. lot of that was, was really working on those responses A visa. That's like you and I, you were on some of the calls I was on, like visa was, was in MasterCard and discovered everybody actually was putting out very strict guidelines for, for ticketing and travel uh, because yeah. we were kind of like get lumped into the same thing. Cause you book it early, you pay for it early and you doesn't, the event, the usage doesn't happen for a really long time. So they had very specific things that we were doing. So there was a lot of toying with responses, but I will say once I found the ones that worked, I automated it. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was completely automated for, for the majority of it. And it was, it's a pretty good success on that, except for I mean, the second chargeback sucked too, but you know, yeah. that's a story for another day. So yeah. So what else? Like anything else you guys have been working on that, that you would like to share with the audience? I know we're kind of we're kind of getting up on time here. I think that that's really the the biggest the two biggest things would be kind of that shift to post order, um, the focus on insults and insult testing, um, and kind of wrapping those together. We we really put a lot of effort into monitoring what we call throughput, which is as soon as a customer hits that checkout button. What does you know that whole process look like? What can go yeah. wrong? Sometimes, as you know from ticketing, tickets aren't available by the time the transaction completes. Yeah. So that's part of throughput. Sometimes that order is rejected to believe to be fraud. So that's part of what can happen there. Sometimes a, an error occurs. Um, you know, a, like product level ticket yeah, I mean, limit. You know, we're, we're not we're of, not perfect even on our all technology. Kinds of things you know? like that that can happen, and so really monitoring that throughput and. You know, of the hundred thousand people that clicked checkout in this time period, what's our net? How many actually got through? When we deduplicate that, because some people will try five or six or ten yeah, or twelve do. times, and so when you dedupe that, what is your dedupe throughput rate? Um, so that you're you're again kind of any time that you cannot get lost in the forest for the trees, um, that's that's always I think a good way to to look at it is. Yes, we want to drill down and see the specifics, but then we want to be able to see how this carries back out and look I, at it from a, a big picture. So I think that that's excellent. Like this, this was an excellent conversation about a different way than some of us do our individual businesses. Like I think that there's been, and I'm guilty of it too, talking about we need to get our fraud decisioning up earlier, 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 earlier. But I think to your point, you're a great example of what happens if you do do that and it doesn't work out properly for the business. Like, so it's another, it's another example of your, every, like your mileage might vary based on how your fraud approach. So yours totally. being in a, in a more post off style thing has worked out greatly for your business. And I think it's important for people to still be able to look at that and, yeah. and make sure like you could, you could block everybody the second they log in you're like, that's fraud. I know it, but there's going to be false positives in there. And depending on the sensitivity of that to your business, like your approach is a, is a great example of, of another way to do things that is extremely effective. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. So I ask everybody, um, what are the top three trends in their world? It doesn't have to necessarily be your business. It could just be the things that you're aware of. 
Um, what are the top three trends happening in your world to wrap this one up? Um, we're still, as has been the case for a long time, but really increasing seeing ATO. That's oh. definitely a big Thank you. That is on the rise again. Uh, I know uh, Carice just did an excellent podcast. I think came out this morning on that um, and and another phrase on that one. Um, So go check that one out, everybody. That's really good. ATOs still on the rise. Don't turn your back on that. (laughs) Um, And interestingly, a few years ago, at least for us, the ATO didn't have a dollar impact. And so it was a little bit kind of puzzling and it was a lot of testing. And now we're, we're starting to see a lot of, you know, a, looking for tickets and accounts that can be sold or transferred out, um, yep. looking for age, you know, accounts that are in existence so that they're can make be more likely to get mm-hmm. through fraud filters, that kind of thing. And so um, starting to see a lot of that. Um, let's see. Um, the non-fraud chargebacks is still a huge thing. I yep. mentioned that and we talked about that. Um, and then it's impacting us a little bit differently, but refund fraud. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the same, I never got my tickets. Well, yep. you know, being able to look through emails and like you opened it, so you did, but also there's a lot of, you know, one of the approaches that a number of ticketing companies have taken are these like very proprietary, try to lock people into a system that takes away, both takes away the ability to be able to see what happened and service that but also makes it a real pain in the ass for consumers sometimes. Yeah, that's a great point. You buy your ticket on SeatGeek and now you've got to log into this other system somewhere else and try to get through and it's not fan friendly at all. And then when something goes wrong, you know, we have a great customer support team and like, pride ourselves on how quick you can get a hold of someone but you're but still gonna I have to tell them to call somebody else <laughs> yeah. and you know when our hands are tied and there's not much we can do there so you know that ties into those same same kind of approaches and metrics and things that can be yeah. taken advantage of and and you know getting then into i guess the last maybe a broader way to say it would be policy abuse yes um, sir and, so yeah, that is, uh, that is, whole I can think of worms there, but. that's a whole, yeah, that's a big, big, big thing. I did that episode on my last episode with Al from Riskified. I'm actually yeah. going to, um, go into Seattle to talk, um, policy abuse with Tom Donnelly, uh, at a Riskified panel up there next month, um, in October 19th, you can register online, everybody. Um, yeah, so that I, I'm happy to see that policy abuse is really starting to come out because I've been screaming about that since probably the latter part of like the, the, the higher arc of COVID, um, yeah. that, and it's coming, but I, I mean, that, that still ties into your you know, non-frauds and all of that, because there's a lot of noise in there, people expecting and, 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 and like I keep saying on every single one of these, that's bigger losses than your chargeback losses are. Yeah. So yeah. keep an eye on that. Totally. Well, thank you very much for, for being generous with your time today. Yeah, this was an, another excellent episode. Thank you for bringing proper audio equipment. Cause it sounds fantastic. Yes. Uh, no, everybody else has been on here. Like I'm not knocking you guys. Everything, everybody sounds fantastic. I'm just saying this is this is mega clear right here. So yeah, um, thanks again. Anytime you ever want to come back, if you got any new things you ever want to debut, uh, go ahead and give me a call. But it's just been an absolute pleasure having you on here. That's great. Awesome. Thanks, Jordan. All right. Thank you.